Uh, I'm sorry, that's just the nature of the format and my recording limitations. All that said, thanks a lot for listening. I hope that you enjoy the podcast, and without any further ado, here is the Revelation Study. Just to do a little bit of review of where we've been so far, we finished up last week with the second big section of the book. So we started out with seven letters to seven churches, and we found a man named John who is a prophet who lives and works among these seven churches, but at the opening of the letter, he is in exile on the island of Patmos. We think that it has something to do with his faith in Jesus and his unwillingness to compromise with the empire, but he doesn't actually give us any details. He just tells us that he's on the island for the sake of the word of the Lord, and whatever that means is whatever that means. We'll have to ask him when we get there. But uh, we, we immediately meet Jesus, have this powerful picture of Jesus, and he tells John to take dictation, and he gives seven messages to these seven churches that are in the Roman province of Asia, what we would call modern-day Turkey. And we see that all of the churches are struggling with basically the same issue. They're all responding to it differently, but they're all struggling with how do we remain faithful to Christ in a culture that is not faithful to Christ. Uh, Particularly, they're set in Rome, in the ancient Roman Empire, and they have all kinds of pressures to conform with Roman religion, with the Roman way of life, what we've been calling the Pax Romana, the, the Roman propaganda, the peace of Rome. And so we saw that the different churches had different ways of responding. Some of them were standing strong and maintaining. Some of them were refusing to compromise. Uh, some of them had, had been so strong they, they'd actually become legalistic and it'd become dangerous. Uh, others were compromising to some degree. We saw that some were allowing some false teaching into the church. Uh, and then we saw that some had become so compromised that they almost didn't seem like they were a church anymore, the church of the Laodiceans. Right where Jesus said, you know, hey, I came to town and no one even knew who I was. Right or the uh, the church at Sardis where he said, you you have a reputation for being alive, but you're actually dead, and you guys need to wake up because it's almost too late. It's not too late, but it's almost too late. And uh, and then we saw that there were a couple of churches who were remaining faithful and they were paying the price for that. They were suffering for that, and they were starting to wonder, well, how long? How much longer do we have to suffer? And and if we're really doing the right thing, if we're really on the winning team, why does it feel like we're losing so bad? And so that that set the stage for everything that is going to happen moving forward. So the next thing that we got to see was John being taken up into heaven, right? He, he looked up and he saw a door standing open in heaven and a voice told him to come up here. So he went up and he is immediately taken into the throne room of the universe, the sort of the control room from which everything is running. He saw the truth of reality. We, we use the metaphor of the Wizard of Oz where he got to peek behind the curtain and see the truth behind Oz the Great and Powerful and it was that Rome is actually not ruling everything. The Pax Romana isn't actually the path to human fulfillment and the fulfillment of human destiny. It's actually God and God's way and we saw that as those two began to come into conflict uh, with the lamb opening the, sea, the scroll and all of that uh, the Roman way was, was overturned and overcome and, and things kept getting worse and worse and worse. We went through the seven seals and the seven trumpets And we saw last week that no matter how bad things got, people would not repent. People would not turn away from their wickedness, even when their own sinfulness was the cause of the things that were happening to them and the cause of all of these evils. No matter what, they still wouldn't turn away. And so we asked, well, is that the only way that God has to to bear witness to them is to hand them over to their sin? And we saw no, that not actually no, because... We then saw that John receives the scroll that had just been opened, and he's instructed to eat it, 
which means he's supposed to internalize this message, internalize everything that he's seen and heard so far, this plan of the end. He's supposed to take that and make that a part of himself and then be a fair witness to that. And so we saw John, and by extension, us who are a part of the church, being called to play witness or to bear witness to what we know is going to happen, how we know God is going to bring about the end of all things, that there is a way that leads to life, and there are lots of ways that lead to death. And if you follow the ways that lead to death, you know what the stakes are, or at least we know what the stakes are, because we have had this revelation of Jesus, and we're called to bear witness to that. And we know it's not going to go well for us, just like it didn't go well for Jesus. But that ultimately, if we follow the lamb who was slain, then we share also in his resurrection. So we ended last week with this, uh, with this, the end. We ended with the Ark of the Covenant. We ended with the seventh trumpet. We saw that the hymn changed, and it said, now the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our God. And instead of saying, God is the one who was and who is and who is to come, it was just, you are the one who is and who was. Because there is no more is to come. Everything's over. Everything's done. And so there's this big, nagging question uh, that should be lingering in our minds. There's a big question that still hasn't really been asked yet that Revelation wants to, to answer for us. And essentially it says, if, if this is really the truth of the way things are, if God is, if God is the one who is on the throne, and if God's people are the ones who win the day, then why are they suffering now? And this is, this, this is an eternal question, right? This is one that has uh, had many, 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 many gallons of ink spilled over it, right? The problem of evil. Why, if God is good and if God is all-powerful, why is there evil in the world? Why do, why do the wicked so often seem to prosper? And not just seem to prosper, but like actually prosper. Why so often do those who do good and those who follow the way of Christ end up crucified? Why is that? Why, if God is really good? And so Revelation is going to rewind everything, and we're going to go through everything one more time. And we're going to now look at it from a different angle. And that's the question we're going to be asking. We're going to be asking, well, where, where is all of Rome's power coming from? And, and why is it that the church is so oppressed in this current age? Why is it that there so, seems like so much is marshaled against us? Does that make sense, the questions that we're going to be asking? Okay. Any thoughts on that? That was everything we've done so far. Okay, good. Let's go on to the cosmic war then. That's the rest of the book. Um, so we need to we need to do a little bit of background to get us ready to set the stage. Uh, if you if you read Revelation twelve already, you know that we're about to look at this cosmic vision. John's going to see this almost like almost like he's back on Earth and the sky's like a big projector screen, and he's seeing all of these visions being played out on this big screen of the sky. And so, you know, we're about to get some visions of a woman who's pregnant, and then she has the baby, and then there's a dragon, and it's trying to eat the baby, but it can't, and all of this kind of stuff. And so before we get into that, uh, I want to do a little bit of background information for us uh, so, that, so that it helps us because we need to clear away some of the clutter that I suspect many of us have in our brains uh, before we can really try to listen to what Revelation is saying. So let's first talk about Satan in the scriptures. Now, if you are anything like me, you have probably heard the story of Satan as a fallen angel. And his name was Lucifer, and he was the most powerful angel in heaven. And he decided one day, for some reason, that he wanted to take over heaven and kick God out. And so he took a third of the angels with him, and he, he rose in rebellion against God, and God cast him out of heaven, and that's where all the demons come from. Anyone, has, have most of us heard that version of the story? Okay. It's pretty common. It's actually not in the Bible anywhere. I know that because I searched for it for years, 
And I was like, oh, I mean, that's, that's the story I always heard. I heard preaching sermons. I heard books, you know, books would reference it, all this stuff. And so one, one day I was in college, and I was like, where, where is that story? Like, I've read most of the Bible, and I've never found it before. So I went searching for it, and I couldn't find it. And so then, then I got really upset, and I was like, well, where did it come from? And more importantly, like, what does the Bible actually say about Satan? Like, he seems like a pretty important character in the Bible for us to make up a bunch of stuff about him. It's not in there. So does anyone know where this story came from? I didn't either. Uh, who, who has heard of Origen? It's a, it's a guy's name, Origen. Okay, he was, uh, he was an early church father. He lived in Alexandria, Egypt, and he lived uh, like right around the end of the 100s, so like 180 to like 250-ish was his lifetime. And in the Alexandrian school of biblical interpretation, they, they used a method called allegory. Have any of you ever heard of this sort of interpretation? Okay, allegorical interpretation. So, for instance, like, and, and origin sermons are tremendously good. Uh, they have a lot of great spiritual insight. But you read how he, how he handles scriptures, and you're like, I'm pretty sure if a pastor did that today, he would get fired in, like, two sermons. Like, one sermon, they'd be like, eh, I don't know about that. Keep an eye on this guy. Two sermons, they'd be like, okay, this, you know. Uh, so he would he would do stuff like he would read. I remember reading one of his sermons on Exodus one, and he said, you know, the Israelites went, and you know, the, uh, a Pharaoh rose up who didn't know Joseph, and so we put the Israelites into slavery. And he was like, this is actually talking about our slavery to sin. And uh, you know, the person who rose, the Pharaoh who rose up, who didn't know Joseph's sin, and all this, and you're like, oh, okay, I see what you're doing, Origin, but I think it's actually a story about how the Israelites went into slavery, like. Mm-hmm. So, he, so the Alexandrian school of interpretation would do this. They would just take little bits and pieces out of the Bible. They didn't pay any attention to historical context, any of that kind of stuff. Because they basically, their, their philosophy was any idiot can do historical context. Like, you read it and get it, and you're like, duh. You know, if you really want to be super spiritual, you go for, like, the deep meaning, which is the allegorical meaning. Uh, and so Origen actually took several different passages from throughout the scriptures, including Revelation 12, which is why we're talking about this. And he, he created this, what we call the, the Lucifer myth, which was that he was this angel who rebelled against God and was cast out of heaven and took a third of the angels with him and all that kind of stuff. So the main text that he used, and I want to just show you, uh, what we're actually going to do is we're actually going to go read the scriptures that he used. And I want to show you how when you actually, like, you read just those verses, you're like, oh, yeah, that is totally that story. And then you, like, just read the verses around it, put it in context, and you're like, mm, that's definitely not what that's talking about. Uh, so here's the first one. And this is actually the main one I want to spend the time on. So uh, he says, uh, this is Isaiah prophesying. He says, how are you fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn? How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will ascend to the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, which is the Hebrew word for the underworld, for Hades, for hell, for all of that, right? You are brought down to Sheol, to the depths of the pit. Okay, so you can see that, right? If you, someone just handed you those verses and you read them, like, oh, yeah, it sounds like exactly what it's talking about. It sounds like, sounds like... Lucifer decided he wanted to be better than God. And what's interesting is this is the passage that the name Lucifer comes from. Lucifer is actually Latin. And uh, let me see if I can get my laser pointer tool here. I, should, I always forget to turn it on before class. Okay, so here you have the O Day Star, O Son of the Dawn. This is actually a reference to the morning star, to the planet Venus. And in Latin, that word is Lucifer. It literally means light bringer or dawn bringer. And that was, a, that was what some people called Venus because it often appears in the dawn sky right before sunrise. And so they would say, oh, that's, it's bringing the light. It's bringing the dawn. It's bringing the sunrise. So uh, when Jerome translated the whole Bible into Latin, 
he, uh, it's called the Vulgate translation and it was in like the fourth century after Christ. Uh, he translated this as how you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer. Right? And then the King James Version was translated from the Vulgate, so they just kept it in there. And so that's where that's that's where we actually got the name Lucifer, but it comes from this passage. Now, if you have Bibles, you can go ahead and open them to Isaiah 14, because I want to read just uh, more of this prophecy. And we're not gonna we're not gonna do anything tricky. I just want you to, to read it with me, and then tell me who the passage is talking to. I'll give you a couple seconds to turn to it. And you'll see that basically all we're doing is we're putting the text back around this verse, and we're putting it back into its context. So we're going to, I'll just begin at the beginning of the, the chapter. Okay, it says, But the Lord will have compassion on Jacob and will again choose Israel and will set them in their own land, and aliens will join them and attach themselves to the house of Jacob. And the nations will take them and bring them to their place. So the house of Israel will possess the nations as male and female slaves in the Lord's land. And they will take captive those who were their captors and rule over those who oppressed them. So again, he's promising there's going to be all this restoration and this reversal of fortunes. And Israel, who's been taken into exile and who's been conquered, will, will have the chance to recover from that. Right? And then he goes on. When the Lord has given you rest from your pain and your turmoil, turmoil and the hard service with which you were made to serve, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. How the oppressor has ceased, how his insolence has ceased. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepters of the rulers, that struck down the peoples in wrath with unceasing blows, that ruled the nations in anger with unrelenting persecution. The whole earth is at rest and quiet. They break forth into singing. The cypresses exult over you, the cedars of Lebanon, saying, Since you were laid low, no one comes to cut us down. Sheol beneath is stirred up to meet you when you come. It rouses the shades to greet you, all who were leaders of the earth. It rises, or it raises from their thrones, all who were kings of the nations. All of them will speak and say to you, you too have become as weak as we. You have become like us. Your pomp is brought down to Sheol, and the sound of your harps. Maggots are the bed beneath your coverings, and worms are your coverings. Oh, how you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn. How you were cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mountains of assembly in the heights of Zephon. I will ascend to the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the depths of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble? Who shook kingdoms? Who made the world like a desert and overthrew its cities? Who would not let his prisoners go home? All the kings of the nations lie in glory, each in his own tomb. But you are cast out away from your grave like the loathsome carrion, clothed with the dead, those pierced by the sword who go down to the stones of the pit, like a corpse trampled underfoot. Okay. What, wh who is that passage addressing? Did anyone pick up on it? King of Babylon. Yeah. Yeah. And what's it saying to him? It's saying, you're going down hard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now, um, what function do you imagine this prophecy would have played when Isaiah was talking about it? What what seems to be going on with the king of Babylon? Or, yeah, again, feel free to use whatever you know from biblical history, any of that. Well, they were conquering everybody. Yes. And, and they were building temple, temples and creating themselves as gods. Yes. So they were kind of the big boys on the campus. Yes. Yes. And now God, in this prophecy, is saying, look, you have said to yourself, O person, that you are going to set yourself up as me. 
You're going to take over my mountain. You're going to ascend. You're going to make yourself a god. And I got news for you. You're going to end up just like everybody else. Okay? Now that's its own, echoes a lot of the themes we've been seeing in Revelation so far, right? A lot of the you know, people always try to set themselves up as God and always end badly for them. But what I want you to notice is that when you put this prophecy back in its context, it's very clearly not addressing an angelic being. It's very clearly addressing a human person who was in a real historical context. Isaiah was a real person speaking in a real place, talking to another real person in a, in a, in a historical place. And what Origen did, and he probably got a lot of praise for this from his buddies, because allegorically this is a great thing to do, he pulled out these few verses and sewed them together with some other verses, the passage in Ezekiel and then again Revelation 12, which is where we're headed next, and then he created this story of the origins of Satan. But it's not something that's actually in the scriptures, and if we want to be faithful to the scriptures, we need to say whatever else is true about Satan, that, that's, not, that's not where it came from. And we're actually going to see where he came from in Revelation 12, but we, that's why I said we kind of need to clear away some of this clutter first. We need to say, okay, we, we need to get rid of the traditions that we've been given that aren't actually founded in the scriptures. We need to get back to what the scriptures actually say about these things. Does that make sense? Okay. And I want to show you why this is important and why it's interesting, uh, because there actually are some important things that this, the, the Bible does say about scriptures. So who is Satan in the scriptures? Well, the word Satan only shows up three places in the Old Testament. Um, and every time, uh, he is essentially acting, and the best way I've, I've ever thought of to talk about this is if you think of the job of a prosecuting attorney. Okay, that is what Satan does. And in fact, the word Satan in Hebrew is a title. It's always, it's always accompanied with an article. So uh, some, some translation will call it the Satan because it's like the prosecuting attorney or the doctor or the lawyer, not like Bob or Jerry or Sally. Um, and so there was this office in the heavenly court where there, this job, the job of the Satan, the job of the accuser, was to collect the sins of humanity, record them, and then present them before God and accuse them of sin. So uh, those of you who are familiar with the opening of Job know that this is exactly what happens, right? The angels present themselves before God, and God says, hey, Satan, what are you doing? And Satan says, well, you know, I'm just roaming around the earth observing humanity. And then God says, have you seen Job? Nothing's wrong with him. And Satan's like, well, yeah, it's because you gave him a posh life. Like, give him a little bit of struggle, and I guarantee you that he'll turn on you. And so then Satan and God enter into this sort of, uh, not really a contest, but God gives the Satan, the prosecuting attorney, he gives him permission to test Job. Uh, we see it in Zechariah 3. It's the same kind of thing. Zechariah has a vision, and Joshua, the high priest at the time, is standing before God, and he's clothed, and all of his garments are filthy because Israel was sinful at the time. And the Satan is standing next to the high priest of Israel saying, look at him. Look at his clothes. He is not fit to be in your presence. He is not fit to be your people. He's not fit to be your priest. Look, he's accusing him. And then in the vision, visions, again, very cool, uh, and it's worth its own separate Bible study. God says, no, 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 I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give him new garments that are clean. And I'm going to forgive. I mean, it's all about forgiveness and restoration and cleansing. But again, you see the role of Satan is this one of accusing and condemning and judging before God. Uh, if we understand Satan this way, if we understand that this is how, especially he's presented in the Old Testament, it makes sense out of one of the most troubling scriptures, I think, in the whole Bible. 
So I'm going to give it to you, and hopefully it doesn't mess you up too bad. Uh, the books of First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings are one long story of Israel's history, and then First and Second Chronicles are like the Reader's Digest version of that story. You just kind of get the highlights of it, and so a lot of times when you read Chronicles, you get a little bit of a different take on what was going on in Samuel Kings. Any of you who have ever had to read the whole Bible through, try to do it, read it in a year or something like that, you know, when you got to Chronicles, you were like, I think I already read all this stuff, but okay, that's why. So, in 2 Samuel, there's this weird story where, for some reason, David did something to make God mad. And so, here's what it says in 2 Samuel 24.1. It says, The anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he caused David to harm them by taking a census. Now, I'm not totally sure why taking a census was such a bad thing, but it was apparently a real bad thing. I'm also not really sure what David did to make God mad. But whatever, whatever's going on here, again, it's worth its own whole Bible study. God was mad at David, and the anger of the Lord here in 2 Samuel incited David to take this census and to commit sin. Okay? Now, I want to show you the exact same story in 1 Chronicles 21. And hold on to your seats. Satan rose up against Israel and caused David to take a census of the people of Israel. Now, if the Lucifer myth is true and Satan's already been cast out of heaven and he's already antagonist to God, this is a huge problem. Because it's like this, the writer of First Chronicles is going along and he's like, Satan, I meant God, I get them mixed up all the time. Like, whoops. Because they would be antagonists. Satan would be against God. But if, if, if these other verses, if we understand them properly, and if Satan is actually at this point in history an agent of God, if he is fulfilling a divine role as a prosecuting attorney who actually tests God's people, then this is okay. Then the anger of the Lord and Satan are not incompatible because Satan here would be acting as an agent of God and testing David, and David fails the test. Okay? Unlike Job, who passed the test. And unlike Jesus, who in the wilderness passes the tests. So, at least at this point, as far as we can tell from the, the limited references to Satan so far, notice all of my qualifiers because things change real quick. Satan is an agent of God, at least doing things that are under God's control, inside of God's power, and at God's command. It happened in Job, it happened here, it seems to be happening in Zechariah. Because Satan's not just like hanging out in the back of the divine courtroom, like kind of like sneaked in and seeing what's going on, like he's right up front and center interacting with God, interacting with God's people. Okay? Everyone good on that? I feel like that's a lot. It's a lot to like just throw at everyone right out of the... Yeah? How does that play into creation story? Okay, good. When Satan is... Uh, Tempting? ...created by God mm -hmm. for what he did, and it almost seemed like he was... I mean, that's like a cast-out story, but he was cast down... He was punished. ...punished, and, and now um, he's made... In, uh, I'm, not, I'm not disputing what you're yeah. saying. It's very interesting. So there's there's a few there's a few troubling things to me about the creation story and particularly Satan's role in it. Um, first of all, I don't get why the snake is punished if Satan's acting like a snake. Like I don't see like that doesn't make it, you know if Satan's like this angelic being that's doing stuff and just like appears as a snake or possesses a snake or something. Like I'm, I'm like why, 
why take the snake's legs away? Like, did, I don't, you know, it's just, it's just a weird moment. But as you pointed out, there, there does seem to be this sense of um, that what happened isn't a good thing. I mean, we call it the fall for a reason. Uh, and so what I think what you'll see when we really get into Revelation 12 is that there's this tension uh, in the role of the accuser. Okay, where, where he's acting as an agent of God, but, um, but the things that he is trying to accomplish don't always seem to be in line with God's purposes. Uh, and I think Genesis 3 is a great example of that. I think, I think Job would be another great example. I mean, does, you know, does God really want his people to betray him? No. Like, certainly not. When David, when David takes the census and commits sin, God's not like, well, I mean, I, I tested him and he failed the test, so I guess it's my fault. Like, no, David's still held morally accountable for those things uh when jesus passes the tests uh, in the in the wilderness it's the same kind of thing like the, the implication is if he had failed the tests, if he had committed any of the sins that satan was enticing him to do uh then he wouldn't have been fit to to die for us so there's there's still there's yeah. also there's also the comment where it says that the lord will not tempt you yes so if he needed an instrument mm-hmm. to do that mm-hmm. um Yes. He refuses to allow himself mm-hmm. to be that. Yeah. He needed some yeah. thing. Yeah. And that's what you that that's that's really the role that you see Satan playing throughout the scriptures consistently is the role of tester tempter. And actually in the Greek and the Hebrew there's no difference between the word test and tempt. So like we're like I've heard some people say like, "Oh, well, you know, God can test us but not tempt us." And in the scriptures those are the same things. So uh, so yeah, let's let's get into Revelation 12, and and I want to see what happens to those tensions because because again, as I've been trying to qualify over and over and over, things are about to change in a big way when we get into Revelation 12. Uh, the role of the accuser doesn't stay the same, and those of you who have, who have already read ahead, you you know what's coming. Yeah, I thought I had a reference to Luke 10. 18, yes, yes. Where Jesus says he saw Satan fall from heaven. Yes, like lightning. Yeah, uh, we're gonna get to, we're gonna get into that. Okay. Good. So, so, so the question, that, and this is the question, right? What happened? What happened to the accuser? So, one other piece of backdrop that we need to, uh, right before we jump into this, is the backdrop of cosmic warfare. Uh, in the world of ancient Israel, all every culture had its own creation story. Right? Every every culture had its way that it started. And if you ever had to take a mythology class, you know the like. You know, every, it seems like every culture has some kind of story about how everything came together. The Greeks had one, the Romans had one, the Babylonians had one, everyone, the Canaanites had one, all of the little nations around Israel that had their own little chieftain gods, each of them had one, and of course, your god is always the star of your creation story. Um, and what's fascinating about mo- almost all of these cultures is that all, almost all of them, creation came about through warfare. So this is a picture here from, uh, from a Babylonian uh, little tableau. And the lion, griffin, dragon thing is Tiamat. The guy with the sweet beard and the trident is Marduk. And Marduk is the chief Babylonian god. And so in the Babylonian creation story, Tiamat was like the sky sea goddess. And she was like this big sea monster thing. And then Marduk was the chief Babylonian god. And he actually kills her and then cuts her body in half and uses uses her to create the world. So creation actually happens out of combat and death and destruction. Uh, this was very similar to what happened in the Greek creation story. Uh, if any of you are mythology nerds and you've ever read like the old Greek myths with like the Titans and all of that kind of stuff, like all, all of that, all of this stuff is like before humans got here, basically all I ever did was fight all the time. And the two sides were like the evil 
chaotic powers that were always represented with water and then like the powers of good which were whoever your particular god was was like the good guy so so for instance when the disciples are out on the sea of galilee and they see someone coming towards them on a on the water and they think it's a ghost or a demon and they're all scared the reason for that is because the water was the that's where evil lived you know when when jesus cast the, the legion of demons into the pigs and they run into the water like well of course they did like for us we're like that's weird why would the demons run into the water but for ancient peoples that made total sense because that was the domain of evil you know, and if you think back to our discussion last week about order and chaos and kind of that, you know, how, how creation for the Israelites was all about establishing boundaries and order, uh, that was part of that. I mean, any of us who have ever been on a boat, you know, you're like this the whole time, like you're rocking on the water because you can't stand on the water. It's very choppy. It's very chaotic. Uh, whereas on the land, you're safe and you're stable and things are good. Right. So uh, so there was this sense there was this backdrop of cosmic warfare uh, that the underline that, and I promise you'll see why that why that matters here in a minute. Right, so I have the, the little yeah, so you can see like people like the ancient peoples like they thought there was just water around everything, and, and that water was not just like tap water, it was like actually sort of like demonically charged evil. I mean, it was almost like evil incarnate. It was these it was these really nasty things that the gods had subdued in order to create. What's interesting, by the way, about the creations, and again, you know this, if you've read Genesis 1, there's no combat, right? God doesn't have to, like, wrestle the ground or wrestle the sea. He just speaks, and stuff happens. So if any foreign nation would have been listening on Israel's creation story, they'd be like, you mean, like, after he fought the stuff? And they'd be like, no, he didn't. He just he just talks, and stuff happens. And they're like, what kind of God is that? I mean, better than your God, God. So... Turn to Revelation 12. Let's meet these characters. Okay. Here we go. A great portent appeared in the heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon and stars under her, or with the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pangs and the agony of giving birth. Then another portent appeared in heaven, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his head. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and threw them down to the earth. Then the dragon stood before the woman who was about to bear a child so that he might devour her child as soon as it was born. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was snatched away and taken to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness to a place where that had been prepared by God so that she could be nourished for 1,260 days. Okay, so we're going we're gonna to jump around a little bit and identify them in order of easiest identification. Uh, and if we were to skip down a couple of verses, we would have the dragon identified for us. Does anyone know who the dragon is? Satan, Satan, the devil. Right? Good. It just says it right out. And uh, the, the devil is particularly monstrous, right? He has seven heads, ten horns. Uh, we're not sure if it's like two per head for a while, and then a couple, or we, you know, but seven, seven heads, ten horns, and then seven crowns, seven diadems, which is the, the kingly crown, right? Not the, not the athletic wreath victory gold medal crown that we've talked about some other times. But this is the one that kings would wear. So let me ask you. Number seven is the number of perfection or completement, finishedness. So what does it mean that it would have seven heads and, and seven crowns on its head? What what imagery, what does that make you feel in that image? Like 
Yeah, I mean, very powerful, right? Very strong, very powerful. What else? He has authority. He has, he's ruling. I mean, he's, this isn't just like some chump dragon. I mean, this is, this is, this is terrifying. This is uh, fearsome. And the ten horns, horns are a symbol of power. And so we, we want to get this sense of this, like, all-powerfulness of this dragon. I mean, we're not just supposed to take him lightly, right? Like, this is really talking about the, the true, huge, horrific nature of evil. Okay, so this is more than, like, why do I stub my toe sometimes? Problem of pain. This is more like, why is there death in the world? Why is there war and genocide? Why, is there, why are there the really, truly horrible things that make people question whether there's a God that's this kind of all-pervasive evil, right? So, uh, any of you who are familiar with the book of Daniel, there is a beast in there that looks very similar to this. We're going to get back to him next week, but just kind of put that in the back of your head if you've ever seen the Daniel beast before or read about that. So any questions about the dragon so far? He's gonna, we're going to do more with him in a minute, but we good on his identity? Okay, let's talk about this woman then. Now, she combines several ideas into one person. Uh, she's giving birth, so that makes, me, that makes us think of Mary, right, the mother of Christ. She's giving birth to the Messiah. Um, but there's also, as you know, with the, 12, with the 12 stars on her head, that makes it sound like the nation of Israel, which it's also appropriate to say that the, the nation of Israel is who birthed the Messiah, right? This is the fulfillment of God's covenant with Abraham, that Abraham's lineage would be the one that fulfilled God's plan in the world. Um, but also because we've been talking about how there isn't a difference in the book of Revelation and the mindset of these people between the church and Israel, there's a sense in which we can also talk about the church as this woman, uh, represented in, uh, in the Virgin Mary, also connected with, with Israel. And there's something really cool going on here. I mean, it's, it's, it's cool and it's also sort of terrifying. When it, when it says that she is in the agony of giving birth, the actual Greek word there, that she's being tormented, it's a really, really strong word. And so there's this interesting idea, and we've seen it in the Revelation already, that, uh, you know, these, these seven churches are, are being tormented. They're, they're suffering for Christ. And so there's this sense that even though we confess that the new creation began with Jesus' death and resurrection, Right, that even though when the Messiah came the first time, that was the inauguration of the kingdom of God, that the kingdom of God also is not fully here yet. And we've been talking about that tension throughout this study. Right, that the end is here, oh, but it's not here yet. But it's here, but it's not here yet. But it's here, but it's not here. But it's almost here, but it's not here yet. And so we see even that here, that we as the church are still suffering. We are still in the midst of birth pangs for that new creation. And it hasn't happened yet, but it's coming. And so, uh, you know, just the same way that Israel groaned and longed for the Messiah's first coming, we now groan and long for the Messiah's second coming because we know, we know how imperfect our life is right now. We know all of the struggles that we face. We know all of the problems that we face. We know all of the evils that still run rampant in the world. We know that even though Christ has come and even though we are indwelt by the Spirit and even though we are beginning to walk in the resurrection, things are not the way that they should be yet. So it's happened, but it hasn't happened. It's here, but it's still coming. And so we, we are in those same birth pangs. And this is actually something Paul also talks about in Romans 8, 22, where he says all of creation is actually groaning, uh, waiting for redemption, crying out for the, for the fulfillment of all of these things. And then the child. Child is 
pretty clearly Jesus. Uh, in case we were confused, uh, John quotes Psalm 2.9, which is a messianic, messianic text. Several New Testament uh, texts quote it in reference to Jesus talking about the child who will rule with the fist of the rod of iron. And so, <laughs> again, this is why I love the power of symbols, because what John is doing uh, here is so fascinating. Uh, if I were to ask you what historical event is being represented by this passage, what would you say? Why? Well, he was taken away, uh, snatched up to God and to his throne. Good. Isn't that interesting? Because um, my first reaction would be Christmas, right? The, the birth of the child. I mean, you know, and you're right, I'm not. My first reaction is dead wrong, but it's like the no-die answer. Like okay, Jesus' birth. But it's not. It's the crucifixion and the resurrection and, and the ascension. You know, it's all of that at the end of his life. Could, could that be because of his nature being both holy God and holy man? Okay. Talk about that. That would, that would be the establishment then or the beginning of the church because it wasn't until we had that perfect sacrifice that salvation was a yes. possibility. Yes. Yes, you're exactly right. what I'm struggling with is if a woman gives birth to the child who is snatched away to the throne of God, at what point did the child die or sacrifice himself? Good. Good question. So, um, what, tell, and tell me your name, Joe. what Joe is suggesting, and, and what I think he's exactly right on, is that the birth that we're looking at is actually, is the, is the crucifixion moment. That in Jesus' death and resurrection is when the new creation is born. And so we're not looking at, when the child is birthed, we're not looking at his literal earthly birth at Christmas. But we're looking at wh when did Jesus' new kingdom begin? What was, the, what was the birth of his new kingdom movement? And that, that was the crucifixion and the resurrection. Without that event, there is no new kingdom. Without that event... You're saying the birth is the resurrection moment? Yeah, I, I would say the, yeah, again, because it's symbolic we can kind of lump the crucifixion resurrection ascension like we, we just kind of lump that all into you know this same kind of thing this this singular event where you know all of human history gets flipped over and this whole new leaf is turned and now all of a sudden this new way of existing in the world that was not available up until this moment is blown wide open and there's this all this new possibility and so, so we could talk about it as the birth of all of these new things. If you go back and you look at, at the crucifixion and the fact that Satan thought he was winning yes. in that respect, but he didn't. So it says he was standing there waiting to yes. devour the child. Yeah. Then the child was snatched. Exactly. Yeah. What is the moment? And that's, what, that's why I chose this picture. You know, what's the moment when, you, when if you were watching from the sidelines, you thought the dragon had the kid? You know, it wasn't at Christmas. Right, Christmas they get away, easy. It was it was. What do you mean God just died? You know, for for three days. Like, is there a worse day of human history than Holy Saturday? When God is dead and God's not yet risen, that tension between those two, which, in a way, is you could argue where we are. Right, we're living between the death of the old things and the birth of the new things. You know, all, all, all things are coming to an end, and the new things are coming, but not yet. They're here, but they're not. 
And there's a way, there's a sense in which we're living in the middle of that. But, but if you were to look from the outside, you'd say, well, the dragon's got him. Like, he's dead. You know? I always looked at the symbology of the child was snatched from death. Like, uh, Christians, when they accept Christ, um, they're, they're snatched. Death, death loses its sting. You're stealing all of my stuff for later. <laughs> yeah, you're absolutely right. Absolutely right. But I thought it was a symbol of a kind of a Christian... Of him, of him taking death away. Yeah. It's not going to happen. It looks like it has to happen. Yeah. And all of a sudden it does. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Yes. That's, I mean, and again, that's the beauty of, of symbolism is does it have to be one of those two things? No, it can absolutely be both of those things. And that's why Paul even talks about we have to participate with Christ in his death so that we may participate in his resurrection. Right? So you're, you're absolutely right. Absolutely right. And again, how much have we seen all the way through Revelation so far that uh, it's in the moment of death that you actually find your victory, right? When do we see the conquering line of Judah? Well, not until we see the slain lamb. When do we see uh, the Christians who have remained faithful? Like, how do they win? When do they get their crowns? Not, not before their first death, but after that. The martyrs under the altar, it's after they've been martyred that they're given the victory robes, Right? So this is a theme that we keep seeing over and over and over and over and over, is that death, death doesn't have to worry you anymore. So okay, good. So so what's interesting is that we're locating this moment at the death, resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus. Right. That's on the when the, on this cosmic drama is playing out. That that's 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 how it's tied to Earth in that in that moment. We good with that? Okay. Let's look at what happens next. Then. Verse 7, and war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry, sorry. Oh, yeah, we did not go through the woman in the wilderness. Thank you. Okay, so uh, the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared for her by God so that she could be nourished for 1,260 days. Now, if you were to guess how long 1,260 days is, based on your experience with the Revelation so far, huh? It is three and a half years. Okay, now that's the number of incompletion. Yeah, 42 months. Yep. And we've seen this number come up over and over and over again, right? That's the length of the three witnesses prophesying, right? That's all of this. We're going to see it in a few more minutes. Uh, that, and remember, what that number symbolizes is it's a limited thing. It's not a complete amount of time. It's temporary. Okay? And so when you hear that the woman, the people of God, when you hear that she's taken into the wilderness... For safety, does that make you think of anything? Okay, yeah, you have Christ in the wilderness with Satan. Anything else? Well, they went to Egypt. Well, out of Egypt, right? Well, they fled to Egypt and came back. Oh, you're talking about Mary and Joseph. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. Back up further than that. Israel and the Yeah, when Israel is freed from slavery, where does God take them? He takes them into the wilderness. And was the wilderness where Jesus... Did his ministry? No. Was it where Israel made their home? No. The Israel is a temporary place. It's meant to be a stopover. And it's really, because, you know, okay, you go back and read this, the wilderness stories. You know, Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. None of us imagined that that was fun. Okay. Um, the Israelites certainly did not like the wilderness. We know that just from reading the story. All they did was complain. And we probably would have too. Okay, we don't have any food. Here's quail. 
after three weeks of quail, like, yeah, anything besides quail, here's some mana. After a few weeks, they're like, anything besides mana, and the guy's like, nope, deal with it. Uh, but they complained, and they complained, and they complained, right? What's interesting is when you go and read the prophets, once Israel settled in their land, and once they've, you know, they've gotten caught up in all the sin and idolatry and stuff, the prophets look back on the wilderness, and they say, man, those were the good old days. Because all we had in the wilderness was God. If God didn't give us food, we didn't eat. If God didn't give us water, we didn't drink. We had to. Now, now we're in this place where we have everything. We have everything we want. We're safe. We're secure. We have all this food. We have crops. Now we don't have to rely on God. And look what happens. We turn to idolatry. And so there, there are several prophets. Hosea, uh, when God's speaking in Hosea, he tells Israel, he's like, he says, I'm going to take you back to the wilderness. I'm going to woo you again. And so he, he romances this idea of the wilderness, romanticizes this idea of the wilderness, where, where that was where God courted Israel, and that was where God really made Israel his bride. And, and it's, it's a temporary place. It's absolutely a temporary place. But it's a place of safety. It's a place of provision and protection for God's people. And it's not our final home. How does the... So then after the birth event and the woman hides in the wilderness... Yeah. How does that speak to the character again of who the woman is? Does that does that speak to her probably being Israel or the church more than just the Virgin Mary? Yes, very much so. Yeah, at this at this point we're sort of leaving the realm of individual symbolism and saying more, you know, obviously, as far as we know, you know, like no one had hitman hitman out on the Virgin Mary and she had to like you know, um it, it seemed like the church for three and a half years might be having to hide under um, more, more what it's, what it's suggesting is that, and, and this is what we're seeing in the seven letters, right? Things are going to be bad for a while, and it's actually about to get worse in just a couple seconds. Uh, but it's a limited amount of time. God knows, you know, it's short. And just like Israel was preserved in the wilderness, even though it wasn't easy, it wasn't like they were getting back massages every day and having grapes fed to them, right? Uh, even though it's, even though it's not going to be easy, God will, God will ultimately preserve and protect them. And, and that's what we've been seeing through the revelation, right? But even with the two witnesses, even if death overcomes you, provision or protection, right? Resurrection. Try to take five and six with some chronology to it. It kind of says that there has to be something happening after the crucifixion up till some finite time in the future of that point. And I wonder, you know, it says that uh, God put a, a, a blinder, so to speak, on Israel. So and, and Zechariah talks about how the blinders removed and over. They will see this the Messiah coming. Yeah. And I wonder if this doesn't relate something to that that time period where Israel basically is taken out of the way, put aside. It's the church age that's taking off mm-hmm. from the, the crucifixion on. But there is that time when Jesus comes back, his feet touches the Mount of Olives, it splits. Right. And it says then that Israel as a nation will realize that he is the Messiah. Well, the problem is, remember here in, in Revelation, there's not a sharp distinction between Israel and the church. So in Revelation, what you would say is true of Israel is also going to be true of the church. Uh, that, that, I, that idea of distinction between those two groups didn't really start uh, until probably about 60 or even 100 years after this text was written. So, um, But there's certainly a sense where we see the kinds of struggles that you were just talking about, even within the church. I mean, there are people within the church who don't seem to be able to see who Christ really is. Uh, that's, that's why he's revealing himself here at this point, right? We're getting to see a clearer picture of him. So, so the seven churches 
basically feel that they're in the wilderness. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and I that's why that's where John's message to them is hope. Hang on, don't again, don't compromise, don't back down, don't falter, because this isn't gonna last forever. All right. Chapter verse seven. War in heaven. Okay, so the child has been snatched up to the throne. The woman is in the wilderness in a place prepared for her. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but they were defeated. And unlike the woman who had a place prepared for her, there was no longer any place for them in heaven. The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Okay. Right. Uh, so, so the the text in question is in Luke, and it's uh, it's say, uh, Jesus is uh, he's about to send out. Or he's either about to send them out, or he's just gathered them back. He's about to send out the seventy witnesses. And actually, thematically, there's a lot of similar things. I wish we had time to spend a lot more time in that text. But uh, they've either just gone out, or they've just come back, and they've they've talked about all these. I think they just came back because he's, he's talking about all these amazing things that they've seen and that they've done, and demons are being cast out, and all this kind of stuff. And, uh, and then it's when Jesus says, well, I'll tell you, I've seen Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Um, so there, there's a lot going on with that. In, in the ancient world, they, they understood or they, they thought of the world as divided up into 70 nations. Uh, so you can see this in, uh, I think, in Genesis 11 in the Table of Nations and some other places like that. But So when Jesus sends out 70, it's, it's, it's a very intentional symbolic gesture to say that he's sending out these people who are symbolically taking on all of the powers of the world and that his kingdom is advancing against all of the kingdoms of the world. And so when, when they come back and they say, you, you won't believe this, Jesus, but we're doing all this cool stuff. And he's like, well, I, yeah, I do believe it. Uh, and then specifically his reference to Satan there uh, echoes his temptation when Satan offers to give him the whole world to, uh, to rule if he'll worship him. Uh, and so essentially he's, he's saying they're the same kind of thing, which uh, kind of like what you're saying, kind of speaking prophetically, which is, you know, I've seen, you know, Satan's cast down. Like the, the ruler of this world is 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 defeated is cast down is no more so um does that get your uh, question yeah, except i just happen to think of uh no gibson's uh, passion of the christ I mean, you you see that the character of satan still prodding the, the people the priests to get the crucifixion done sure via the romans Trying to fit all that together in, in context. I mean, if Jesus is speaking from the Godhead point of view, yeah, that could have all happened at one time. But from the physical standpoint of he's still alive, he's talking to his disciples, he hasn't mm-hmm. gone to Calvary yet. But he's saying, well, Satan's already been brought down. Mm-hmm. But yet Satan was very active at the time up to the. the well, I, I, think, I think what you'll see here in a few moments is that Satan being cast down doesn't mean Satan's not active. Uh, so, certain, certainly, and, and again, that that's actually sort of where we're going to end up today, is that just because the battle, or just because the war's over, ironically, doesn't mean that the battles are. 
Yes. Yes. And he said, he didn't sit there and say, well, it's not yours to give. Right. The implication is that it was his to give. Right. Yes. So, let's say, chronologically, something's not fitting up into this. Well, even the Apostle Paul called Satan the prince of the air or something. Anyway, Mm -hmm. he implied that Satan really still Mm -hmm. was a power on earth when he was a king Paul's around. We're going to get to that in just a couple verses. (laughs) (laughs) Um,. Okay, so hang with me for just a minute. We'll, we'll get back to all this at the end once we've gotten through this chapter. So, um, according to Revelation 12, at the death and resurrection and the ascension of Jesus, so this is, this is a little bit backwards from most of what we've seen. Usually we see things happening in heaven first and causing things to happen on earth. So Jesus pops a seal, we get a horseman, right? Uh, someone blows a trumpet, we get a meteor. But now, something has happened on earth. Jesus has died and resurrected, and then when he ascends, that triggers this war in heaven. And Michael battles the archangels, or sorry, Michael Michael the archangel and his angels battle the accuser, battle Satan, battle the dragon, and the dragon is cast down to earth. So we've, uh, oh, he's already swept a third of the stars out of the sky. Okay. So that sets up the hymn. So what we've got now is we have the woman, she gave birth, the child, uh, which again we talked about is crucifixion and resurrection. Child ascends to heaven. The dragon is cast from heaven down to earth. So let's read this hymn together. Verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven proclaiming, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our comrades has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. But they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they did not cling to life even in the face of death. Rejoice then, you heavens, and those who dwell in them. But, this is where I think you guys are getting, woe to the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you with great wrath because he knows that his time is short. Okay. So, um, oh, Sorry, I actually forgot one thing. Uh, we needed to go through the four titles of the devil, uh, which were actually given back in verse 8. Uh, so first of all, he's called that ancient serpent. Um, this is, yeah, I think this is on the, well, you, have, you have this in your notes. Um, he's called the ancient serpent. That's a reference back to uh, those, those chaotic primordial waters. Uh, like the, if you've read through Job or any of those, you see like Leviathans and Rahabs and all of those. There's these like big mythical sea serpent things that were representative of chaotic evils. You also hear echoes of Genesis 3 in there, right? So, so again, this idea is that this dragon, he's not like, a, he's not just this like kind of bad dude. Like it's, <laughs> like it's like really the, it's like evil incarnate, right? He's called the devil. Uh, in... In John's literature, which you think about the Gospel of John, the, the letters, the uh, first, second, and third John, uh, the devil, the, he uses the title the devil for to mean the opposite of God. So he often talks about people who are the children of God and people who are the children of the devil. Uh, and he talks about the devil as the, the father of lies and deception and all that kind of stuff. Uh, he does call him the Satan, which is that role that we talked about, the kind of accuser, prosecuting attorney role. And then he talks about, he calls him the deceiver. Uh, he calls him the deceiver of the whole world. 
And so we've seen a little bit of this deception already in Revelation, right? But we're now getting to the place where this is going to become full force, and we're going to be seeing exactly what kind of power Satan, the dragon, the devil, the deceiver, wields over the world. Exactly how he rules the nations, exactly how he is the prince of the air, all of these kinds of things. Um, we're not going to see it today, but we're going to start seeing it next week. We're going we're to see how this dragon interacts with the nations of the world and what he does with them and all of those kinds of things. So that's why I said we're going to, all of these questions you guys are coming up, like they're, we're headed there. So back to the hymn. Heaven, in heaven it's party time. Because the dragon has been cast down. The dragon's not in heaven anymore. And so uh, the, the, the singers say, rejoice, you heavens, rejoice. This is, this is good because the accuser of our brothers has been cast down. The one who stood before God and accused them day and night is now no more. Um, this echoes uh, what Paul says in Romans 8, where Paul says there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Uh, the, the reality is that in the wake of the death and the resurrection of Jesus, we have uh, forgiveness for sin, and we have atonement, we have oneness with God, and so there is not this, uh, essentially what Revelation has demonstrated is that this office of accuser is no longer necessary, that there is no one now standing before God accusing us of sin because we are covered by the blood of Jesus. And again, we're not actually like, I don't know of any commentators who think there's actually like a literal courtroom in heaven and it just has like a clothes sign on it and cobwebs growing in it now. Like it, this is all metaphorical language talking about how Jesus has rescued us and how things are really different in the wake of his death and resurrection, right? Before that, and this is the whole book of Hebrews. Before that, there were sacrifices you had to make on a continual basis. Uh, you had to, you, you know, had to do all that. But then Jesus came and it was one sacrifice for all time and it changed everything. We don't do animal sacrifices better not be doing animal sacrifices anymore for any of that kind of stuff so uh so we get to see that in him we can see everyone celebrating that and, and it's the same kind of thing that we saw when the lamb took the scroll right worthy are you to open the like like all oh, everything's different now everything's different we're singing all these new songs all these possibilities that weren't possible before no one could open the scroll we have this person accusing us day and night before all of that stuff is over and everything is everything is being made new and it's not new yet but it's being made new and it's almost new but it's not new yet we're in the birth pangs, but it's on its way to being made new, and we're participating even now in the beginnings of that newness. Yay! But, there's always a but. But on the earth, things are not looking so hot. Um, so it says, it's very interesting, it says, The devil has come down to you with great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. So the dragon has come down to the earth. He's been cast down. He's been thrown down. He has, there's no place for him in heaven. He's been cast down to the earth, and he knows that his time is short. He knows that he's already been defeated, that the war is already over, that he was already completely conquered on the cross, and he doesn't have much time left. We've heard that before, right? No more waiting. It's almost over. No more delay. His time is short. So the question is, and, and very quickly... Uh, just kind of in, in, the, in the rest of the chapter, the question is, well, what's he going to do? You know, he's already lost. He's already been defeated by Christ. He has no hope of victory. He's been completely excluded from heaven. So what, what can he do? Any thoughts? Yeah. Yeah, he's going to attack us. And now, now let's be very clear about what that means. What can he do to harm us? 
Yeah. And how might he do that? I mean, in general, we don't have to get into specific things. But what, what themes have we seen going on in the Revelation so far? Okay, why, why will persecution hurt us? I mean, it hurts, but like, why is that such a good weapon? How? Why? What? What's happening to them? They're compromising. Yeah, persecution leads to compromise. The worst thing that can happen is that we have too much, like the land of Syria. Yeah, we get comfortable. We get comfortable. We stop relying on God, right? And that, that's what's so fascinating. If you go back and read in verse 11, listen to what it said about us. It said, but they, these are believers, this is us, they have conquered him, how? By the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. How? It says, because they did not cling to their life, even in the face of death. The only way that the dragon can hurt God is to hurt us. And the only way to hurt us, and because he's already lost, the battle's already over, there's no more fighting that he can do. There's nothing that he can do that is going to change the outcome of reality. Uh, the, the truth is that there's actually nothing that he ever could do to, to change. I, I think it's so fascinating when you read through this, how it keeps building up to these climatics. Like, it's like, this woman, is she's beautiful, and then this scary dragon is here to devour the child, and now the child's gone. Like, well, that was abrupt. And that's like, and then war broke out in heaven, and Michael and his armies, and the dragon and his, and the dragon got cast down. I'm like, huh? well, you know, if this was a Hollywood blockbuster, that'd be like the last forty-five minutes of the movie. You know, it'd be all kind of blood and guts. Angels don't even probably have guts; they have them in the movie, right? But in in, in the scriptures, like, no, there's never an actual threat from Satan. There's never an actual threat from the dragon. There's never a, a, a moment. When it seems like he actually poses a threat to God's sovereignty, to God's rule from the throne. Never a moment of that. And so even though, even though Revelation presents evil as a much bigger thing than we usually think of it, you know, seven heads and these ten horns, and, and, and it's tied into these like primordial sort of like monstrous feelings of evil that pervade every, even though, even though it paints evil is that and it's much bigger than we usually think about the devil and about evil it's also at the same time much less powerful because there's never a moment when God is threatened when God doesn't have everything under control when God's not completely calling the shots so the only way that believers can lose is by compromising our faith or our testimony or witness to who God is the only way is by assimilating with our culture and saying, you know what? I like my stuff. I like my comfort. I like my lifestyle. And I think those might be a little bit more important to me than doing what God has called me to do, than being a faithful witness to God. Brings up an interesting thought, though. If you want to split the earth into believers, non-believers, it says that the dragon was Okay. But I don't find that being very much the truth either, because if not, the world wouldn't be in a dire situation unless 
it was just for the sake of trying to destroy the believers. Mm -hmm. That may be the case, but that just doesn't seem to ring true. Uh, I, I don't know if it, you could draw one farther conclusion and say mankind is what he's out to destroy. Now, not all mankind proclaims right. Jesus or anything like that, but it sure seems like there's an awful lot of people who haven't even heard of Christ mm -hmm. and still suffer an awful lot. Well, I mean, look, you could you could maybe spin it a little bit and look at it this way. So let's let's go ahead and read and get up to where you were just quoting from, so that we're all we're right there. So uh, we're gonna go ahead and finish out the chapter thirteen through uh, seventeen. So here's what it says. So when the dragon had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. We'll come back to all this. Don't worry. The woman was given two wings of the great eagle, so that she could fly from the serpent into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for time, times, and half a time, three and a half times. There it is again. Then from his mouth the serpent poured water like a river after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to help to the help of the woman and opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from its mouth. And then the dragon was angry. So he, again, he tries to destroy the woman, and he couldn't again. So he's angry with the woman, and he went off to make war on the rest of her children, those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. So just point out, so it, it seems as though all the dragon is concerned with is the people of God here. You missed, you missed words in there when you read that. Oh, sorry, go ahead. That's the last couple words out of verse 14. Out of the serpent's reach. Okay. Uh, my translation doesn't have that. That's okay. What translation are you using, just out of curiosity? Okay. So, um, so what I would suggest, because uh, I think you raise a good point, like what about all these other people? If we go back and we look at chapter 11, which I know that you guys weren't here for, uh, but in, you know, in chapter 11, the church is actually called to be these witnesses that are telling the world who God is and the plan of God and all of this stuff. And so if, if instead of splitting the world into believers and non-believers, you say believers and potential believers, right? then there's still a problem for Satan. And if the church is bearing witness to who God is, then a lot more of those potential believers are going to become believers. And so... It, so I think it's sort of a win-win for Satan. If he can disrupt our witness, not only is he hurting us, is he, not only is he hurting our relationship with God, our the health of our churches, all of those internal issues, but we are also sacrificing the witness that we bear to the world. We, we, we quit. It, it's just like Laodicea, right? God showed up and no one knew who he was because they were so not living like the church that people were like, Jesus who? Never heard of him. Right? Or like the, uh, the I always get them mixed up, the sardines, the ones that he said, you have a reputation for being alive, but you're not, you're, you're dead. So, so, I mean, I think that that's, that's still what's at stake for, you know, for, for Satan, that's, that's, his, that's his goals. Uh, yeah, certainly, probably, uh, he doesn't care over, overly much about, what, what, I think really what, what he seems to care about is he's mad at God and wants to hurt God as much as possible and the best way to do that is yeah through us and through again anyone in the world like it, we, scriptures tell us God does not delight so in the says that, that all yeah yeah so if, God, if Satan gets in, in the way respect, of that, yes, that yeah the same thing, yeah uh, and again the the absolute best way to do that is to to hurt the witness of the church you know and, and I think about uh, you know how many how many of you have ever had a conversation with someone who's not a believer and one of the first objections to Christianity that they bring up is our long bloody history 
They say, well, I just don't see actually very many Christians who look like Jesus. And you're, you're like, yeah, me too. Uh, like, sorry about, like, what, what can we say? We're like, you're right. There's a lot of us that have not done a very good job of looking like Jesus. And so the, the image of Christ that we're bearing to the world isn't one that anyone's interested in. And then we say, who, who does that benefit? It doesn't benefit God. It certainly doesn't benefit us. It only benefits the enemy. Right? So. But a lot of that's a lie, too, right? I mean, that's Satan. The deceiver. Yeah, yeah. Christians have done great things. Absolutely, absolutely. No question. There's been some good books written on all of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But all the bad stuff gets delivered. Yep. Absolutely. Okay, let's go back. I just want to work through that last that last little bit. We kind of skipped ahead a little bit. That's okay. So, uh, you know, again, we have the dragon's going to go after the woman, after the church, after the people of God. And again, God takes her to the wilderness for provision and for protection. Uh, it's interesting here that then the dragon calls on those primordial waters, and you kind of get this echo of Genesis 6 where he basically attacks her with flood, which is those chaotic pre-created waters like coming in and destroying everything. But then the woman is defended by creation itself. I mean, the, the, the good creation that God made actually rises up and defends her. It swallows the waters. And so we're getting, and we're going to see this a lot more next week, but you're starting to get a sense that battle lines are being drawn and sides are being chosen. And you have the dragon and all of his armies on one side. And then you have the one who is seated on the throne and the lamb and all of their armies on the other side. And so next week, we're actually going to see as the dragon starts recruiting armies. And we're going to spend a lot of time talking about well, who's on the dragon side and who's on the lamb side. And what is that, you know, why are those lines being drawn? How are they being drawn? And we're really going to start getting into this idea of Satan as the deceiver of the world. Okay, does that does all make sense? Okay, so yeah, so we have the dragon's attack. All right, so we've got... Oh, good, good, good little amount of time. But any, any closing thoughts or questions before we go into so what application? This is a lot of setup this week. We're this is we're going to be building a lot of this. Go ahead, Steve. I thought it was interesting uh, when you mentioned that uh, the world has, or let's say the non-Christians have this bad impression of uh, Christians based on history and maybe the bad decisions that were made, even though a lot of good things were done by Christians. But there, the first thing I thought of was, well, that's because the non-Christians have a really talented prosecutor. Yeah. We talked about Satan. Yeah, absolutely. So he's going to point out every crusade mm-hmm. and every horrible Christian mm-hmm. army that killed all these people just because mm-hmm. they weren't believers. And mm-hmm. He's going to point out all these things to yes. make them go, well, what about this? Well, what about this? Well, what about this? Like, you know, it's always the dirty laundry yes. that gets in the way of... And any of you who have someone who is very close to you who is a non-Christian, you know this on a personal level. Because you try to talk to them about God, and they, they do the exact same thing to you on a personal level. Like, whoa. I mean, how are you going to sit there and tell me that when this about you and that about you? And you can say, oh, you want, well, okay. <laughs> but, but I've been in those conversations. I'm sure that you have too. Um, it's an exceptional tactic. It's brilliant. Evil brilliant, but still brilliant. Right? And again, the only the only defense that Revelation offers us is to to lean into being those faithful witnesses, you know, to be able to demonstrate the saving power of Christ in your life. You know, the only thing more convincing than that bad argument of saying, "Well, look how you used to be," is saying, "Well, yeah, look how I'm now." 
know, you're you're right. I, that, that was me. You're telling truth right now. Yeah. Absolutely. So, great thought. Scary thought. This is kind of weird. You know, looking at that last couple words there, it says he knows that his time is short. Short for what? And, and you got to kind of say, well, what does that mean? He's, he's an eternal being. He's not going to be destroyed. Not in the sense that he's not going to exist anymore. So he will exist. So what would be the difference from his condition there to after that time has come? Yeah. The, the, the thing is going to be the captivity. Yes. So we're looking at captivity when he gets bound for a thousand years, at the end of the thousand years when he gets bound for eternity. Yes. So the, the thing that he would want more than anything is to be mobile. To yeah. Around, uh, because once you're in captivity, he can't, he can't still do this. I mean, and that, and that's, and again, that's what we're all waiting. That's that birth pang that we're experiencing. Is that right now, evil still has the run of things, and and the promise of the revelation that we've seen over and over and over and over and over again is not much longer. This whole story kind of implies that after Christ rose from the dead, there was a battle. Satan was thrown out of heaven. It implies to me, at least since that first century, things have gotten a lot worse. Mm-hmm. You know, not better, but worse. I mean, the earth's a much dangerous place to live than it used to be. <laughs> On the other hand, though, I mean, the average lifespan globally has increased. You know, many diseases have been eradicated. I mean, that you know, it's, it's the same kind of thing. Well, yeah, because there's, there's bad stuff, but there's good. How, like, how do, you, how do you decide what counts more? We had more wars in the last hundred years than probably in, like, a few other hundred years combined uh so you know how do you start how do you measure and, and it, for me what it all comes down to is like the human heart hasn't actually changed like the you know people are still being born under the weight of sin and death and so um that's what hasn't you know we 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 have better tools and, and we can either use them to heal or use them to hurt uh but but that all depends on the person that's using them you know, gun, what is it? Guns don't kill people. People kill people. Right? <laughs> so, so, so the issue is the world's not. I don't know if the world's getting better or worse. I don't know how you measure that. You know, but I know people are still people, and people still need rescue. And you know, and that's that's never going to go away. I mean, it'll, it'll come to an end at some point. But okay, let's talk about some application. Um, so. Again, this is this is hard because we are doing it's so much setup this week, and we're, we're you know we've transitioned to a whole new section of the book, and John's just now laying some groundwork from stuff he's going to be developing later. But uh, you know, one thing we really hit hard on was this uh, this prevalence of evil and this overwhelming, terrifying, seeming invincible power of evil, and uh, the Oz great and powerful you know keeps coming back to my mind. You know, when you really stare evil in the face, the, the seven headed, ten horned, seven crowned dragon. It seems overwhelming. But there's a message in here that says, actually, he's not, he doesn't have any power, any real power, any eternal lasting power. Jesus said himself, all authority has been given unto him. Yes, all authority. All authority, and then he gave it to the church. Yep. And so the question is, the real authority lies. Yep. But we have the deceiver that tries to deceive us thinking he has it. Yep. Yes, and we are happy 
to give him lots of power. Another thought, a little bit askew maybe. We talked about the the dragon being this big visual, powerful, evil force that is in your face, and talking about how is the Earth getting worse now than it was, or is it not? Um, I tend to think that I don't know that the Earth is getting worse because when you talk about this dragon being in your face being this big evil presence, when I think of it as, I'm thinking of it as like the media, the internet, television, all these avenues that everybody has to see all this evil and sin and everything. Now I know the population here is much greater now than it was, but I'm saying you have this evil in your face, constantly in your face, it's like this overwhelming, look how bad the earth mm-hmm. is. And that's kind of that presence of it but what it boils down to really is all the evil that you may see it's still one decision that's made in here as to whether that affects you or not Mm -hmm. are you going it's an internal uh, personal decision as to what you do Yeah. no matter how overwhelming that visual is that huge red dragon all the stuff we see on television about how horrible the earth is what God cares about is what are you going to do? It's that internal decision. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, oh, that's so, I wish we were just through next week because next week we're really going to, uh, next week we're going to get into, okay, so the dragon wants to wage war on us. How does he do it? I mean, when's the last time you got poked by a pitchfork, you know, by Satan, right? I mean, that's, we don't see, and we hear, you know, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled is convincing the world of this, and all these kinds of things. And Steve's already been echoing a lot of this, where he's talking about media influences and government influences and all these kinds of, uh, what we would say are more subtle. But once you know to look for them, you know, they're there. And we'll see that, and we'll see that when, when the dragon starts recruiting his armies. And we're going to have to have some really good conversations about what that looks like in our world today. But that'll happen next week, so you got some time to prepare. Um, okay, let's go ahead and skip to what are we talking? What about us? Um, so, so one particular thing, and we, we hit on it a little bit earlier, but there's a, there's a there's a clear echo of Israel's time in the wilderness, of Jesus's time in the wilderness, right? Of this temporary time where you're living between where you were and where you're going, right? Between the cross and, and the resurrection, between death and life. When you're in the birth pangs of that new thing, it's coming, but it's not here. But it's here, but it's not here. And, and the churches were in that. The churches were experiencing that. And, and I would argue we are experiencing that still today too. So, so what does it mean for us to live in the wilderness? What does it mean for us to be here? And several of you have raised the point that it seems like an awfully bad thing when we get everything we want. So for those who live in suburban Ohio, most of us have most of the things that we want. So how do we live faithfully in the wilderness? How do we live faithfully here right now, knowing that this is not where we're ending up? This is not our final home. This is not where we're putting down roots forever. We're here, and we're here now. Go ahead, Mike. Sorry. It's a spiritual wilderness, I think. Okay. We, we certainly have material things. Mm-hmm. It's not a material wilderness mm-hmm. at all. And maybe... Spiritually, I mean, aren't we in the wilderness? Uh, just <laughs> seems like 
Mm-hmm. I, I think one of the things they talk about here is how uh, the child was given uh, protection of the wounds and stuff like that. And I, I think that one thing that hasn't really come up a whole lot is the Holy Spirit. I mean, when Satan fell, about the same time, you know, God gave the earth the Holy Spirit, right? So, mm-hmm. so maybe that balances things. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. No question about that. So so then what do we do? What do we do to take advantage of that? I mean, seriously, like right now, like in... How, how do we do that? How do we live faithfully? Are we just not under attack? Is Beaver Creek, Ohio, like a blind spot on the dragon's radar? And he's like, eh, there's probably nothing there I need to worry about. Or are, like, are we, as Steve indicated, are we also under under attack? Okay. Ooh. Yeah. Anything, anything but, anything but. That's, That's the thing. He doesn't care, right? He, he he doesn't he doesn't want us all gather around a satanic altar, sacrificing goats, and singing Satan hymns. He didn't he didn't care about that. He'd be fine with people that just that say, "Yeah, I'm I'm totally a Christian," but then I don't actually look anything like Jesus, and my life actually leads people away from Christ instead of towards Christ. He's totally cool with that. Totally fine. With Yeah. I mean, we got separation of church and state. We got, you know, this and that. Mm-hmm. You know, church belongs in your private life. Yeah, exactly. Religion belongs in the private sphere. Yeah. Doesn't come into the public sphere. Right. Yeah. That sort of thing. Yeah. But you don't have to speak your faith. Nope. It doesn't need to come out in words. In fact, it's better if it doesn't. Mm hmm. Uh, well. Most of you know about the Bridge Cafe, the coffee shop that my wife Amanda runs. Um, when I came here, I first ran it. Uh, the cool thing about that place uh, is there's no, any of you have been there, you know there's no signage of any kind that says ch- church, Jesus, certainly not Beaver Creek Church of the Nazarene. There's not crosses. There's, I mean, there's nothing external that tells you that it is a Christian place. Uh, and that's on purpose. Right, because we're in the dorms and we're in a, on a secular campus, and they actually, when we first came in, they were very leery 
when they figured out we were a church, they're like, oh, no, we're bringing that Jesus stuff on campus. And we we're like, we just want to run a coffee shop. But what's awesome about it is that every kid figures it out. And it, it's always like they're, it, I mean, it. the first couple times it happened, I was like, that's a little weird and cool. But now it's, it's, it's the thing that happens. Like, I can almost guarantee you every kid that comes in, we're going to have this conversation with them. And it's going to happen, like, probably their, their fourth or fifth or sixth trip through. And they're going to come to the counter and they're going to order their drink. And they're going to be like, is this, is this like a Christian coffee shop or something? And we say, yeah, we're not ashamed of it. We say, yep, yeah, we're owned by a church and run by a church, and that's, you know, we're here to give you a safe space to be and to, you know, to build a relationship with you and love you and just, you know, help you succeed as a college student. And so the first few times it happened, I would ask. I was, just, I was like, I'm just curious, like, how do you know? Like, how, how did you know? And every time the answer was, all, it was like they're all reading from a script. They would go, I don't know. Like, you can just tell. There's just, it, uh. And then they would, usually they'd say, man, if I'd known that, I never would have come here ever and then they get their drink and go sit down see you tomorrow you know because because of exactly that because we you know we didn't we didn't come in preaching at them there are people they call them the quad gods that come with the bull you know bullhorns and they're going to hell repent and yell at kids and girls wearing mini skirts and stuff like that and it's all that you know and we don't we didn't do that you know we came in and we we loved them first and we we welcomed them first and and we get to have the the most amazing transformative conversations with those students you know we get we get to be we get to to reorient their lives in such a way that they're pointed towards christ and we get to watch them as they progress towards a relationship with jesus and it happens over a long period of time um but it's 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 a very cool thing um and that you know that's when i when i'm when i'm looking at what it means to be a witness for christ like that's 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 an example and i think it's one of the cool things our church does i think feed the creek is another great example of that where you know people say i just don't know what god's will for my life is and i keep praying and i don't know and you say okay well let's let's do this do you think god like it god likes it when kids don't have food not a trick question no okay well feeding kids is probably god's will then you know um that's that there you go start with that I think we get so caught up sometimes in God's, you know, I should I take this job or not, or should I, you know, do this thing in my life or not, and and we pray and we ask God for all these answers, and again, I was sometimes help wonder. I'm like, well, we don't we don't actually do the the clear things that are God's will for us. So why in the world would He trust us with anything risky or important? You know, I know that as someone who has to lead people, like if I have a volunteer person and I give them a super easy job. And they flake out and forget about it and do it, don't do it. I'm not like, well, time for you to take over something important. You know? I'm like, okay, how can we nicely excuse them from helping anymore? You know? And so why, why would it be any different for us? Why if we can't do the, the plain, simple things that we know God wants us to do? Why in the world would, would we be trusted with anything more groundbreaking and more interesting and more important? So... Okay, well, we kind of talked about that. Any, any other thoughts? Other questions? Other comments that this has been generating for you? Now, this is a lot to chew on. Some of you introverts are going to go home and think about 50 things you wanted to say. Just write them down. Bring them back next week. The question I've had all week is, you know, why did John write Revelation like this? I don't get it. I don't know why he does first 11 chapters and he jumps in the, uh, chapter 12 and I mean, I, I like to blame it on artistic license. Yeah. 
I think he thought it would be a lot more interesting. Um, I'll tell you this. I've taught the book of Revelation. This is my fifth or sixth time teaching it. There are letters of Paul I just haven't ever taught because I'm like, oh, those are okay, but Revelation's way cooler. <laughs> it's like, really, the, the way this book is written, and this may not be for everyone. This could just be for me. But the way this book is written, it makes me want to come back to it over and over and over and read it again and again and again and pull out new things. And I mean, even this, again, this is like my fifth or sixth because I'm teaching it, not just reading through it myself, but like teaching it. And I'm still, I've still got three commentaries open every week when I'm preparing. I'm still reading and refining and doing new things and learning new stuff. I mean, it's, you know, I, and, and it's, you, you, I don't know, the, the, the epistles, the, the more straightforward stuff, it's just not quite the same. Like a puzzle, yeah. Oh. And then you get it together, and you're like, I'm not sure that's totally right. Like, that part I like, but this part over here, like, uh, I'm not sure. And then you, so you take it all apart, and you put it in. Uh, just, it's, it's wonderful. It's, it's, and, you know, all, all of the scriptures have that quality of being able to return them over and over and over. But this, this text, the Gospels are the same way. Like, when Jesus' stories and all the, like, there, there are just some parts of the scripture that, for me personally, almost like demand that I return to them and, and spend more time in them and, and that. So I, I think part of it might be that. John's just like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something real cool, you know? And I, 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 would, I would way rather read this than if he's just like, all right, guys, don't compromise with the culture. Like, Satan's going to try to get you. Like, be, I'd read it once and be like, okay. You know, but this, these, these images stay in my head. You know, as I'm sure they stay in some of yours. That, that image of the lion being the lamb is never going to leave. You know, this image of the woman burying the child and being caught up in Like, it's just great okay we're out of time i want to close in prayer for us next week um read chapters 13 and the first half of 15 14 you'll know what i'm talking about uh this is the armies being chosen so see how many of the characters you can identify um some of them will be more clear than others just like usual see the connections and the parallels that you notice there's some cool stuff going on in 13 and 14 read it a few times focus on what's clear and then a super fun bonus question this is honestly one of my like top favorite things in the whole book of revelation which you're probably tired of hearing me say but for real is the land beast so who is a land beast see what you can figure out about that there's some there's some good clues in the text all right let's pray together god as always we're thankful for this opportunity that we have to gather your scriptures uh, and to, to study together we ask that as we go out tonight uh, that you would make us mindful of these things, that you would uh, give us eyes to see, uh, that we would examine our own lives, that we would see the places where we're complacent, where we're comfortable, where we're compromised, uh, that we would understand those for what they really are, that it is a big deal because it's the enemy's way of deceiving us. Uh, we thank you that, that the victory is already won, that the way that we have victory in our life over Satan, over these things, is not by having to pick up arms and fight him back. Uh, because who, who could hope to win? against him except for you we thank you that that battle's already over and that now our victory comes by your death and resurrection that all we have to do all our only call is to be faithful witnesses to that and we know that it will cost us we know that it will hurt here in the temporary but but eternally we know that you will protect us and preserve us and we are grateful for that so we go, again, as we go tonight, we ask that you would make us mindful of these things. We ask that you would help us to continue to meditate on them throughout this week. And as we dive into chapters 13 and 14, we pray for insight and clarity and wisdom and discernment as we read. Uh, we're so grateful for your scriptures. We're so grateful for John who gave us this crazy book that we get to spend so much time chewing on together as a, as a church community in the power of your Holy Spirit. And we pray all of these things in the name of the Lamb who has slain your son, Jesus. Amen. All right. Thank you so much, everyone. 
uh, right up over the edge this time. So we'll see you guys next week.